You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Jesus Christ is truly God and he is truly man. He died on the cross for our sins. On the third day, he rose bodily from the dead, gloriously triumphing over Satan, sin, death, and hell. And by God's grace, everyone who repentantly entrusts themselves to Jesus will be saved from the power and the penalty of sin. We will be forgiven and made new. We will be indwelt by God's Spirit. We can have hope and joy and peace in this life, and we have a certain promise that one day we will rise again as Jesus has risen to eternal life in the new creation and enjoy unending bliss in God's presence. That's the gospel. That is the good news that Christians have preached for the last 2,000 years. And it's great news. It offers us purpose. It tells us that we should live to please this one who has bought us. It offers us forgiveness for all the terrible things we've done in this life. It offers us hope in the face of tragedy and the grave. It offers us clarity about why there's evil in this broken world, and it's because of sin. It offers a promise that in the end, God will set all things right. This is such great, clarifying news. We might think that everyone would rejoice to hear it, that everyone would want to believe. And yet, over the millennia, while so many people have been presented with the truth of this gospel, so many of them have rejected it. And that shouldn't surprise us, because Jesus said in Matthew 7, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Those who find it are few. Why? Why is that the case? Why do so many people reject Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us that we're all born slaves of sin. If God doesn't draw us, we won't believe. We've talked about that a lot recently. But today we're going to talk about some other reasons why people reject God's truth. Reasons that are less behind the scenes and more related to what we might call the human side of the equation. And we're going to see these reasons today in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 through chapter 14, verse 12. And in today's passage, we're going to see four points. First, some people reject God's truth because of excessive familiarity. Second, some people reject God's truth because they don't understand it. Third, lots of people reject God's truth because of unrepentance. And fourth, we're going to see that God's truth, when it's rejected, often receives violent opposition. We start with our first point, which is that God's truth is often rejected because of familiarity. If you've got a Bible, look at Matthew 13, verse 53. We read, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. Now, the hometown here is almost certainly Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. And Jesus now teaches in Nazareth's synagogue. And if you know your New Testament well, this might ring a bell for you, because a very famous incident takes place in the Nazareth synagogue in Luke chapter 4. There, Jesus stood up, and he began to read from Isaiah chapter 61, Luke 4, 18. Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus plainly declares himself to be the Messiah, prophesied by Isaiah. And Jesus' audience rejects him immediately. And there's a very sharp exchange. And the whole incident ends with the audience trying to murder Jesus by throwing him off of a nearby cliff. But Jesus somehow manages to elude the crowds and escape. Now, it's unclear if that incident in Luke 4 is the same incident Matthew's referring to here in Matthew 13. I think it probably is. But whether it is or not, let's work with what Matthew tells us here. Jesus preaches in Nazareth, and he gets a strong response. Look at verse 54. So that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? What Jesus says stuns the crowd. And more than that, they seem to be aware that Jesus has power to do miracles. Now, we're going to see in a minute, Jesus didn't perform many miracles in Nazareth, but he did perform some. A parallel passage to this is in Luke 6, and in, verse 5, or in Mark 6. And in Mark 6, verse 5, we read that Jesus laid his hands on a few sick people there and healed them. Now, Mark tells us this is a small deal, that Jesus laid his hands on some sick people and healed them. And he says it's a small deal as if to compare this to everywhere else where Jesus went, where he did even greater miracles. But... Jesus did do a few miracles here, and they still would have been astonishing. And so perhaps Jesus' audience is astonished by the few works that Jesus did. But even more than just the few works he did in Nazareth, probably the people in the synagogue are also aware that Jesus has this reputation for performing great miracles, and he's been doing it all throughout Galilee. They've heard that Jesus has great power, and they're dumbfounded because this is Jesus, Jesus who grew up with their kids. Jesus who used to go to this synagogue. Jesus who helped build things in their homes and for their farms. And now this same Jesus is here preaching to us and performing these miracles. They recognize his face, but the works are incomprehensible to them. And so they ask, where did Jesus get these powers? He didn't seem to have them back when he was living with us in Nazareth, they say. And on one hand, we might understand this question. If one of the kids who grew up in this church came back in 20 years and he's suddenly performing powerful miracles, we would probably want to know, like, hey, how'd this happen, right? But what they're asking also reflects great unbelief. Because this question, where did he get these powers? That's not a geographical question. They don't really care about where on the map he got the powers. And it's not an educational question. They're not saying, well, he didn't learn this at Nazareth High School. Where did he pick it up? That's not the idea at all. This question, where did he get these powers, is the same question the wicked Pharisees were asking in chapter 12. Are Jesus' powers coming from God, or are they coming from Satan? That's really what they're asking here. And what we said a minute ago, we might understand why at first they would have questions seeing Jesus work these miracles. Despite that initial shock, I think it would be very hard to honestly cast aspersions on what Jesus was doing. When we read the gospel, somebody that's animated by demons is doing bad stuff. They're beating people up. They're tearing their flesh. They're not healing people, right? 
Jesus is healing people. Jesus is showing the goodness and the kindness of God. And to doubt that it was God behind Jesus' powers, especially in that time when they were waiting for the Messiah, these people were showing terrible, cynical, hard-heartedness in the face of what they were encountering. And now they're going to try and talk themselves into disbelieving what they had seen. Look at verse 55. They say, is this not the carpenter's son? They thought Jesus was the son of Joseph. Matthew's gospel started way back in chapter 1 by telling us that Joseph was the legitimate descendant and heir to King David. So we might think if they associate Jesus with Joseph, that's going to be a point in Jesus' favor, right? He's the heir to the Davidic dynasty. That's not how they're thinking at all. They don't care about Jesus' pedigree. They're only thinking about how things have worked in their own community. And in their own community, Joseph is someone who is unimpressive. He is somebody who is decidedly ordinary and has an ordinary job. In the Greek text, Joseph here is described as a tectone, basically a construction worker or possibly a carpenter. And they use Joseph's occupation as an excuse to reject Jesus. Joseph's not someone exalted or high and mighty in the community. And the audience is saying, can anything really important come from a blue-collar family like that? That's the logic. It's straight elitism. The same elitism we find in our society, right? Interestingly, in Mark 6, the insult the audience uses here is not about Joseph. It's about Jesus. They say, is this not the carpenter? We learn from that question, Jesus also had worked as a tectone. And the folks in Nazareth hold that against Jesus. Can a construction worker have anything to teach us? Could God use someone like that? That's what they're asking. More than that, look at verse 55. They say, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? They say, we know Jesus' family. They knew Mary. And when they looked at Mary, they didn't see anything special. They knew Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, this is an important point because Roman Catholic theology teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. So they teach that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, and we believe that because the Bible says that, right? But they say afterwards, Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. Now, when they're confronted with a verse like this, they'll say these words, brothers and sisters, are actually talking about Jesus' nieces and nephews and cousins. Now, it's true that the Greek word Matthew uses here infrequently talks about distant relations other than siblings. But ordinarily, this word means sibling. And there are other Greek terms that describe more distant family relationships. For instance, in Colossians 4.10, we find the Greek word that describes a cousin. So if the people named here were simply cousins or more distant relatives of Jesus, we could ask, why are they never referred to using those other more precise terms? They're always called as brothers and sisters. Particularly... James and Jude, who would go on to be significant leaders in the early church. James and Jude were so humble that in their books of the New Testament, even though they were the brothers of Jesus, they introduced themselves as slaves of Jesus. So much are they trying to downplay any familiarity with him. Why then would the early church keep calling them the brothers of Jesus and not find a more suitable, distant term unless they actually were also the children of Mary? No, the natural reading here is that Jesus had siblings. 
siblings who were not virginally conceived, but who were the natural children of Joseph and Mary. And the people of Nazareth decided that because they knew Jesus' siblings, they could dismiss Jesus. It seemed totally impossible to them that if the Messiah appeared, he should actually have ordinarily, ordinary family members who acted like normal people, who they might personally know. In fact, in their minds, the very fact that they knew Jesus' relatives and that those relatives seemed ordinary meant that Jesus could not be anybody important. They have a view of the Messiah that is so exalted that they've forgotten he has to be truly human. If you're human, you're going to have a family, right? So they ask in verse 56, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. The audience uses their familiarity with Jesus and his family as a pretext to reject him. And this word offense, it speaks of great intense opposition to Jesus' claims. Verse 57, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus is not surprised by this rejection. He expected it. And yet he came to Nazareth anyways, just like he went to every other town in Galilee. And the towns he didn't get to personally, he sent his disciples to, according to chapter 10. See, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He gave everybody an opportunity, even the folks in Nazareth. But Jesus also knew something that many of us have learned over the years, which is that sometimes the people who will be the hardest for you and me to impact positively for the gospel are the people who have known us the longest and the best. Because their familiarity with us deadens their ears to the important truths that we want to tell them. And they will find that knowing you makes it very easy to rationalize ignoring what you have to say. Maybe because in... Like, like in Jesus' case, they can hold something in your background against you. Oh, your family was weird. Oh, your family was poor. I don't have to listen to you. Maybe they dismiss us for other reasons. Uh, Jesus was without sin, but we aren't, right? Maybe they dismiss us because they know our lives or they know about things that we've done, things in our pre-conversion lives or things that we've done after our conversions that have brought disrepute to Christ. And that's a tragedy. We want to live to make sure that doesn't happen. But sometimes it does because we aren't sinlessly perfect. Sometimes people know our past and it's not a good past and they use that past to ignore what we have to say about Jesus. And when that happens, either we can tell them the truth that our lives have been changed, and hopefully they have, or we have to trust that in the end God is going to save all who belong to him and he'll somehow get somebody else to come and talk to them if they won't listen to us. But friends, the axiom that familiarity breeds contempt is nowhere truer than in the spiritual domain. And the people of Nazareth felt so familiar with Jesus and his family, they decided on the very fact that they knew his family, they didn't have to listen to Jesus, they could ignore what they had seen with their own eyes, and they could ignore his profound wisdom. It's a terribly sad thing, and it's a terribly stupid thing. In Mark 6, we read that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. That's really something when the Bible tells us Jesus was surprised by something in his humanity, right? But Jesus was surprised how hard-hearted these people in Nazareth were. Verse 58, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now in Mark 6, we're told that Jesus could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief, which has caused some people to argue 
that Jesus' ability to perform miracles is not a function of his own power, but rather a function of the recipient's belief. This is a key text in the Word of Faith movement. But it's a total misinterpretation of what's happening here. The issue is not that Jesus has lost his touch or that in some way he was constrained by their unbelief. Rather, Jesus not performing many works in Nazareth is a judgment on the unbelief in that city. Just like the, Jesus judged the crowds earlier in this chapter who didn't believe in him. And he said, well, fine, I'm not going to present the truth to you in a clear way. I'm going to work through parables. It's the same thing. Now, these people won't believe in him. And so he withdraws the visible evidence that he is the Messiah. He withdraws his miracles from them. As verse 12 in this chapter said, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so that's how we should understand Jesus not performing many miracles in Nazareth, even though he was willing to perform them in other places that had rejected him. He was withholding this visible evidence from these unbelieving people. Now, what we see in this first point is that folks sometimes reject Jesus because of familiarity. Now, when we talk about familiarity with Jesus, often we're concerned that people are speaking about Jesus in an irreverent way. So there are lots of people today who are quick to call Jesus friend or homeboy, but they never seem to think as Jesus as, as anything exalted. They never think of him as Lord or Christ, right? And, and that's a concern. We need to recognize that the people in the Bible who had the most cause to act familiar with Jesus, his siblings and his friends, they are the ones that spoke of Jesus in the most exalted language. The truth about Jesus' humanity is not meant to exalt us to his level, but rather his glory should cause us to be humble when we think about him. I think that's true. But... I don't think that's really what this passage is warning about. I think this passage is warning us about a different kind of familiarity. There are people today who spend their whole lives seeing Christianity not as something that they need to personally engage with, but rather as sort of a cultural inheritance. I'm part of a Christian culture. Or somewhere in the past, I had a relative once who was, you know, some kind of a Presbyterian, and so we're a Christian family. Or I've been told that my politics are similar to what many Christians think, so I'm a Christian. Christian just becomes a vague term in these people's minds that talks about some kind of social or family identity that they think they have. But it's no longer a confession that someone has repentantly entrusted themselves to Christ. And people who think like this have a domesticated Christianity a familiar Christianity, a Christianity without substance, without warnings, without personal demands. Christian becomes a meaningless, nebulous adjective. And friends, that is a terrible place to be. Because Christianity is not something that you inherit from your family. It's not something that describes our culture. No, Christianity is about the gospel, which demands that we each repent and follow Jesus. And if we don't, we're lost. That's the truth we need to realize. But a familiar, cultural, nominal Christianity has deadened many people to that truth. And tragically, people that think like that when they hear the gospel, they say, oh, I don't need to, I don't need to listen to that. I'm already a Christian. But as bad as that is, there's an even worse place to be. There are people who spend their whole lives going to churches, even good churches, who have heard 
many sermons, who have heard much of the Bible read aloud, and yet they still want to keep it all at arm's length. They've never really believed. And all of that sitting in churches and hearing the name of Jesus and being familiar with the forms of Christianity, it's deadened them. Oh, they may know the vocabulary. Oh, they may be able to pass it off like they really belong to Jesus. Maybe they pray in public once in a while. Maybe they've even convinced themselves that they like some of the ideas of Christianity. But somewhere over the years, they were content to stop there. I'm at church. That should be enough. I sing the songs and I listen to 10 minutes of the sermon. That should be enough. Sometimes I even go to the prayer meeting. But we're not willing to engage with the idea that our lives are riddled with sin. That Jesus died because of what we have done and that he died to break the power and penalty of that sin for us. That he wants to make us new. That he wants us to repent and follow him. That some of us say, I don't want. And sitting in church over the years, we're content to listen to the assurances that the Bible gives us. Oh, we love to hear about the simplicity of the gospel and eternal security. But you want to talk about the warning passages? Turn it off. You want to ask me to repent or examine myself? Turn it off. Friend, if I am describing you, I implore you in the name of Christ, be careful. It is possible to sit in church for so long and hear the name of Jesus for so long and tell ourselves that we are okay for so long that we actually stop listening to what the Bible is saying. That we no longer have an ear which is capable of hearing what Jesus has been saying clearly for 2,000 years. Which is that we must repent and believe. We must follow him. And you know what? The people I'm describing that are in this boat, in the end, they're the hardest ones to win evangelistically. Because they're so sure they're already saved and they won't even entertain the possibility that they're not. I wonder, when we hear the truth that we heard in last week's sermon that the gospel's costly, that it demands all from us. Do we see any application in our lives from that? When we hear the warnings from the parable of the sower about those who fall away when things get tough or those who worship money rather than Jesus, do we see any warnings for ourselves there? Do we ever leave church feeling like God has pointed at us? Or do we always just feel so safe? Because we have become so familiar with all of this that we've lost the truth. That there is an edge. There is a warning. There is a seriousness to Jesus. Friends, don't let familiarity harden your heart. But we come now to our second point. And here we see that God's truth is often rejected because of misunderstanding. Now Matthew's going to do something quite different here. Since the end of chapter 3... Every incident in this book has described the actions or the words of Jesus. But now for just a few verses, Matthew's going to turn his attention elsewhere. And he's going to bring a different set of people into the spotlight. Now, what Matthew's going to tell us about here still relates to Jesus. In fact, Jesus shows up at the beginning and the end of the rest of this passage. And we're going to see that this passage heavily foreshadows what's going to happen in Jesus' life. But Matthew now is going to tell us about some other things that were happening in Galilee involving some other people. And he begins in chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. So Jesus is having an enormous impact in Galilee. 
And while it's true that the vast majority of people who interacted with Jesus did not respond to his call to repent and follow him, there were still vast crowds that popped up everywhere that Jesus went, hoping to benefit from his supernatural powers. And you know when a person's able to command that kind of popularity, it's not very long before powerful people start to notice them. This has already begun to happen in the religious domain. Back in chapter 9, we saw that some Pharisees wound up in conflict with Jesus. And in a parallel passage, Luke tells us that some of those Pharisees had come up from Jerusalem. So religious leaders in the capital are starting to hear about Jesus and they want to look into him. But now we find another powerful person taking note of Jesus. And this time it's a political figure, Herod the Tetrarch. Now, we've seen this name Herod before. Back in chapter 2, King Herod tried to murder the infant Jesus and wound up massacring little children in Bethlehem. That Herod, who was a terrible man, is a figure that was known to history as Herod the Great. He was a puppet king who served Rome and governed the Jewish people. But when that Herod died, his will divided his kingdom between three of his younger sons. And the Herod here in Matthew 14 is one of those three sons who has inherited part of his father's kingdom. This Herod is known to history as Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was another puppet king who ruled only over Galilee. And now Herod Antipas learns about Jesus' growing fame. And here is his reaction, verse 2. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod hears about Jesus and his miracles. Now, we might think, well, hey, this is a guy who grew up in a Jewish context in the first century. Maybe Herod's going to be able to recognize the signs of the Messiah when he hears these reports about Jesus. But it doesn't register to him at all. Herod is not going to go out and repentantly follow Jesus. In fact, Herod has no idea who Jesus is or what he's doing. And his servants don't either. Mark 6 tells us they thought Jesus was Elijah or one of the prophets of old. And Herod has his own guess. And Herod's guess is informed by a really wicked decision that he had recently made. Herod had ordered the death of John the Baptist. And now that he's committed this terrible sin, Herod is doing something that many of us do after we sin. He's looking over his shoulder. He's waiting for someone to chase him. He's waiting, expecting God's judgment. So when he hears about Jesus, he thinks, oh, oh no, John the Baptist is back, and this time he's supercharged with miraculous powers. Herod's guilty conscience is screaming at him. But this superstitious outlook just shows us how clueless he is about Jesus. And friends, this is the case for many, many people today. They resist God's truth. They resist Jesus. And principally they do so because they have no idea who Jesus is or what he's really about. And that's because they've never been evangelized. Now, you know, in some parts of the world, there, there remain sections where nobody's ever taken the gospel there. But there are lots of people's, people in societies today where the gospel has been preached, and yet people in those societies still have no idea about who Jesus is and his gospel. Just like in our society today, there are many people who have no idea about who the real Jesus is and what his gospel is. And that is because very often believers do a terrible job Proclaiming the gospel. We've got to ask, what are Christians most associated with in our culture today? 
I looked for statistics on this. I really couldn't find anything that was clear. But my guess is that our belief in Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection is not the primary thing that people in our world associate us with today. And when people don't actually know what we believe or teach, when they don't understand why we think the way we think and what we value, then like Herod, they're going to jump to their own conclusions, which are usually erroneous. So many people in our world today think that Jesus and his gospel are fundamentally about taking certain political positions or advancing certain social agendas, whether that be on the right or the left. So many people today seem to think that Jesus is a psychotherapist in the sky who exists to unconditionally affirm and accept us no matter who we are or what we do. So many people today seem to think that Jesus is just there to make life easier for us and hook us up with a little miracle when we need one. And in the end, that's actually how Herod Antipas comes to see Jesus, according to Luke 23. He thinks Jesus is a cool miracle worker who can do neat tricks. But friends, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord of all. And believing friends, if we don't tell unbelievers that truth, they're not going to know who Jesus is. That's why it's so important for believers to make our main proclamation, the main thing we stand for, the gospel. Now that's not to say we can't talk about other things. In just a minute, we're going to see John the Baptist had some strong words of criticism for his political leaders. But we need to understand our job is first and foremost to know Christ and make him known. To proclaim his deity and humanity, his lordship, his death, his resurrection, and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Friends, if we don't tell unbelievers that truth, they will not be saved. Because our proclamation is the means that God uses to win the lost. And if we don't tell them the truth, they will get their ideas about Jesus from the world. And the world isn't going to tell them the truth about Jesus, right? Unbelievers need us to tell them the truth about Jesus. But even if we tell them that truth, they may still not believe, and we see that now in our third point, which is that God's truth is often rejected because of unrepentance. Herod Antipas confused Jesus with John the Baptist, whom he had recently murdered. And now Matthew is going to give us some details about that murder, because John is a very important figure in this book. It was John who declared the Messiah was about to appear, and when he appeared, it was Jesus. It was John who first preached the message that Jesus would soon proclaim. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was John who baptized Jesus on that occasion when the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And when the Spirit visibly descended on him. And it was John in chapter 11 who sent his disciples to Jesus to say, Is it really you? Are you the one that we should expect? To which Jesus gives one of the clearest statements in the whole book about who he is. Matthew's very interested in John the Baptist. And now he's going to tell us how the Baptist's ministry and life ended. Look at verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Matthew now summarizes the events that led to the imprisonment of John. These events would have been very familiar to Matthew's earliest readers, but they're very unfamiliar to us today. So let me explain what happened. It's a little complex, kind of like a soap opera, but just follow along here. Okay, so I told you earlier, Herod the Great 
he had bequeathed his kingdom to, to three of his younger sons. And you might say, well, that's kind of strange. Like, if you're a king, don't you usually give your kingdom to your oldest son? Well, that didn't happen here because Herod murdered three of his older sons, and he disinherited the rest. Now, the events Matthew's going to describe here have to do with two of Herod's surviving kids, one of whom is Herod Antipas, the king of Galilee, and the other is one of the disinherited sons, a fellow called Herod II in the history books, who the gospel writers call Philip. So we're going to call him Herod Philip. Let me say a word now about this Herod Philip. In the final days of Herod the Great, he noticed that his family was a real mess. He had ten wives and tons of kids. That's pretty dangerous for any royal family because you've got a lot of people that say, hey, I've got a claim on the throne, right? And that's going to breed civil war. So at the end of his life, Herod the Great decided to simplify some things. Uh, he figured out three of his kids wanted to kill him, so he murdered them. Uh, and then he put all of his dynastic hopes on this Herod Philip. He had Herod Philip marry Herodias. Herodias was Herod Philip's niece, who was 12 years younger than he was. Now, that might sound gross to us, marrying uh, your niece, uh, and that should sound gross because it is. Uh, but royal families in the ancient world often encouraged close intra-family marriages like this to consolidate power. And this was a consolidating move because Herod Philip came from one of Herod's wives and Herodias was descended from another one. So the idea was this would pull the family together. But a few days before Herod the Great died, he learned that Herod Philip's mom had concealed another plot to murder him. And for that reason, Herod the Great disinherited Herod Philip. And Herod Philip wound up having to leave Judea to go live in Rome. And Herodias, who thought she was going to be a queen, wound up having to settle for just being married to a very, very wealthy man in the capital of the world. Now, let's fast forward about 25 years. Herod Antipas is now king of Galilee, and he decides to visit Rome. And while he's there, he sees his brother, Herod Philip, and he meets Herod Philip's wife, Herodias, and they just hit it off. There's just one problem. Actually, there are two. First, Herodias was still married to Herod Philip. And second, Herod Antipas was married to the daughter of the king of Nabataea. But Herod Antipas and Herodias decided they didn't care about the consequences. They were in love, you know, and love wins. So they ditched their spouses and married each other. Herodias got to be a queen after all, and Herod Antipas offended his first wife's family, who would soon declare war on him and destroy his army. But it's a very modern love story, right? Wrong. Well, it is a modern love story, but it's not a good one. Because God had something to say about all of this evil. And God's prophet, John the Baptist, stood up and he told the truth. He said, this is all sin. Particularly under the Jewish law, you heard Kyle read it a little bit ago, this kind of a relationship was forbidden. Right? Leviticus 28.16 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Leviticus 20, verse 21 says, If a man takes his brother's wife, it's impurity. So God's prophet John said, and actually the verbal tense here denotes ongoing action, John kept saying, this is not right for you to be married to her. Not only that, but in Luke 3 we read that Herod had been reproved by John for all the other evil things that Herod had done. 
So John called Herod Antipas out publicly for all the bad stuff this guy's been doing. Now, in Mark 6, we read that Herod understood John to be a righteous and holy man. And we're told there that Herod feared him because he was connected to God. Herod recognized John was the real deal. And more than that, Herod Antipas was to some degree interested in what John had to say. Look at Mark 6.20. It says, when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. An ungodly man meets God's prophet, and he's confused. Wow, you live a totally different kind of life than I do. What's up with that? He doesn't know what to make of John or what John is saying. And it put Herod in a place of uncertainty and doubt about his sins. And there was something about John that Herod found to be gladdening and positive, even though John was rebuking him over and over. But for all that, Herod still would not listen to John's famous demand. He would not repent of any of his evil. He would not repent of his sin with his brother's wife. See, some people won't believe because their familiarity has hardened their hearts to the truth. Some people don't believe because they don't actually understand the truth. But very often people will not believe because they do understand the truth, but the truth requires something of them that they're not willing to give. These are people who see the pearl of great price and say it's not worth the high cost. They think their sin is better. And that's Herod. John 3.19 says this, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Romans 1.32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And friends, we need to know that the end of such people is condemnation. Because as John preached in this book, and as Jesus preached in this book, and as Jesus' disciples preached in this book, God demands that we repent, that we turn to Jesus from our old lives of sin. Jesus is not just selling fire insurance. Pray the prayer, get your protection, and get back to your old life of iniquity. No! Real saving faith is a, is a, is a faith that says, I've got to get off of the broad road to destruction. I've got to move towards Jesus. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. But friends, the Bible repeatedly warns that those who make an ongoing unrepentant practice or lifestyle of sin are not saved, period. And if you're not persuaded by that at this point, I urge you, read Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Read Revelation 22, 15. And tell me, what does it mean? Friends, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And 2 Thessalonians 2, 12 says, all will be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Maybe you resist this truth today. If so, maybe it's because you haven't been taught the truth in the past or because you have an excessive familiarity with the gospel but you won't actually humble yourself to believe what the Bible says clearly or because you don't want to believe it. But whether you know about it or understand it or believe it or not, it's still the truth. Unrepentance leads to judgment, and the false pleasures of sin lead many to reject the gospel and receive that judgment. But when people reject the gospel for unrepentance, it's not usually a rational, calm rejection. No, it escalates quickly, and that's what we see in our last point. God's truth, when rejected, often receives violent opposition. 
Herod was confused by John. He liked something about John. But Herod was also threatened by John because Herod was going to war. He needed his people's support. But John was telling those people Herod was in unrepentant sin. And Herod saw danger to that, and it led Herod to some dark conclusions. Look at verse 5 of Matthew 14. And though he, Herod, wanted to put him, John, to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Herod wanted to kill John, but he didn't because he was afraid there would be an uprising. His wife, Herodias, also wanted to kill John. Mark 6.19 says Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. John made lots of enemies by speaking the truth. And now those enemies have an opportunity to silence him. Matthew 14, 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. All right, so Herod's having a birthday feast. He's got a bunch of guests. And based on what we know about these people in ancient parties, probably everybody's getting drunk. And in the middle of this drunken feast, Herod's niece-turned-stepdaughter shows up, and she wants to put on a dance. Josephus tells us this girl's name was Salome. And at this point, Salome would have been a very young teenager. Now, ordinarily, it would have been considered very unseemly for a princess to do any kind of a dance, displaying herself in front of anybody that was lower class than her, much less a bunch of drunk, rowdy, older men. But here comes this young girl, and she does this dance. And there is a very ancient interpretation which suggests that this was a salacious or provocative dance. And I think that's probably true, based on what we know about the Herods. Now, we're told that Herod Antipas, this girl's stepfather, was pleased by this little girl's dance. And again, the ancient interpretation, which I think is true, is that Herod here is giving a leering, lustful approval. And in his drunkenness and vile lust, Herod decides to try to impress this young girl and all his drinking companions by offering her an extravagant reward for making him happy. Matthew 14, 7. So that he promised her with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now that's quite an offer from a king. Even a petty king like the Tetrarch of Galilee. And this girl doesn't know how to exploit this offer, so she consults with her mom, Herodias. And you better believe Herodias knew what she wanted to get for this favor, right? Verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That was not what Herod wanted. Herod partly did want John dead, but he feared the crowds. He knew John belonged to God, and he kind of liked John. Herod should have withdrawn his rash vow when he saw this was a bad idea. But if he did, he would have been humiliated in front of his drinking buddies. Verse 9, and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Previously, John had made Herod feel uncertain about his life of sin. But as happens to every one of us, eventually a moment comes where we have to make a decision. Will we repent or will we double down? And Herod made his choice. Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. So John is illegally killed without a trial here. He's beheaded, which was not an acceptable form of capital punishment under Jewish law. It's just a straight power move that Herod makes. And John's head is given to Herodias as a trophy. Verse 12, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. John still had a movement of loyal Jews and 
and they did right by John. They buried him respectfully, and they told Jesus about what happened. And this isn't just because Jesus' ministry was so close to John's. But if you remember in Luke 1, Jesus and John were cousins. They were very close. And even though in chapter 9, some of the Baptist followers had conflict with with Jesus' followers, in the end, the Baptist people recognized and respected Jesus enough to break this news to him. And that's how the passage ends. Now, what we need to understand today is this. The opposition to the truth of God often takes a violent turn. John the Baptist spoke God's truth. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth to powerful people, and we shouldn't be either. To stand for the gospel means we've got to expose sin sometimes. We've got to talk about what God thinks about sin. And that doesn't just happen on an individual level. We should speak about evils in our culture. We should speak about evils perpetrated by political elites. And that's what John did here. But when John speaks about these things, he does it from a place of righteousness. He's not a hypocrite. He's not speaking to promote some worldly agenda. Oh, I'll I'll attack Herod so I can get some other guy to take his place. No. He speaks the truth. Whatever's true is what John speaks. And he's doing the right thing here. Because out of love for the truth and out of love for Herod, he wanted to call Herod to repent. But as he did this, he made enemies. And friends, if we call people to repent, if we speak the truth of the gospel, we also will make enemies. In Galatians 4, Paul says to the deceived churches of Galatia, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Unfortunately, believers, when we tell the truth, that's going to happen. Because Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus said the same thing in this book, Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. By how many? By all. And this hatred often leads to violence. Matthew 10, 17, Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. Matthew 10, 21, Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, because Jesus said in Matthew 10, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher. The enmity and violence that believers have faced through the ages is the exact same thing Jesus himself faced. And I think it's a really important part of why Matthew tells this story to us at this point in his book. Because the end of chapter 13, in a lot of ways, forms a conclusion to the first part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has gone to Galilee. He's shown himself to be the Messiah. He's been rejected. Where is the story going to go now in the second half of the book? Well, this foreshadows where Jesus' ministry is going to end. This shows us where it's going to head next. Because what happened to John is going to happen to Jesus. Back in chapter 11, Jesus made this same connection. He said, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. John came and was rejected. And in the same way, Jesus came and was rejected. And now we see how far this rejection will go. John was illegally murdered because of his witness to the truth. And Jesus will be illegally murdered because he is the truth. And over the next chapters of this book, as Jesus increasingly gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, the idea that he is going to die becomes clearer and clearer. This is where Jesus must go. He must die as a ransom for many. And when we understand that, we begin to understand 
that Jesus called that we should lose our lives to gain them or to take up our cross to follow him, that's more than a figure of speech. As Jesus goes, we should expect that we may go. If they hated and killed Jesus, they may hate and kill us too. And if you've got doubts about that today, friends, look at the vitriolic reaction that people are having about the recent abortion decision. Churches, including the little church my parents go to in Pennsylvania, have been threatened because the world hates the truth. And if we're loyal to Christ and the truth, we should expect similarly violent opposition or worse. So how should we respond to persecution? But Jesus told us in this book, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In chapter 10, he says, Fear not. And he says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Persecution comes, we don't want to deny him and fall away. We saw in the parable of the sower, that means we don't really belong to him. We want to endure to the end and maintain a faithful witness for Jesus. But that means we have to be willing to pay the cost. We have to be willing to surrender all. Are we? Are we willing to suffer and die for Jesus? Or are we like the folks we've seen this morning? Too familiar to really hear what Jesus is saying. Not understanding why Jesus is who he is and why we should follow him. We're too unrepentant to turn from our sin. I pray this morning none of us would have an unbelieving heart, but that we would recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and that we would gladly repent and follow him to the end of our days, though it may cost us everything.